Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. We actually took people who really weren't doing a ton of skincare. We put them on this routine. It literally took two minutes a day. And they found that after the span of two months, we actually surveyed people when they looked at their before and after photos. And they said that they, that they looked about five years younger. So now, if you do this routine, Stephanie, you're not going to look five years younger because your skin's too nice. Okay. But other people who maybe have a little more aging of their skin, they can really see some changes with it um, because it will reverse a lot of the aging. Hey friends, we are talking all about skin and aging and the natural interventions that we might do to slow down aging in the skin, as well as cosmetic surgeries. My guest today is my friend, Dr. Anthony Yoon, known as America's Holistic Plastic Surgeon. Dr. Yoon is a nationally recognized board certified plastic surgeon. He's recognized as a leader in his field, and he's the author of several best-selling books, The Age Fix, In Stitches, and Playing God. His public television special, The Age Fix with Dr. Anthony Yoon, has been viewed by millions. He also hosts the popular podcast, The Holistic Plastic Surgery Show. He is the most followed plastic surgeon on social media with over 4.5 million subscribers on his YouTube channel, 8 million followers on TikTok. His new book, as we're talking about today, Younger for Life, is a complete holistic guide to turning back the clock using the process of auto-juvenation. So... Tony is a friend of mine. We've been friends for many years, and we talk about collagen degradation, elastin degradation, what the essential beauty routine should be in the morning and in the night. And then we add on, for those of you that are extra, like me, you know, what are some of the extra things that you might add on to that? So I pulled the audience before speaking to Tony, and that was one of the questions that came up. So we talk about his ideal skincare routine. And if you're extra like guacamole, what are some of the extra things you can do? We talk talk about sunscreen, sunblock, and the controversy around sunscreen. There are people, at least in our world, uh, that seem to be vehemently opposed to it. So Tony gives his view on that. Treatments, what are some of the topical applications like retinoids, niacinamide, and skin brighteners? We talk about some of the interventions that we might think about for age spots, for sagging skin, sinking skin, drooping skin. We talk about crow's feet and we talk about fine lines and frown lines, forehead wrinkles. We talk about Botox, the safety profile of Botox. We talk about lips and lip injections and hair loss. And then finally, we talk about some of the things that Dr. Yoon does not ever recommend, what he calls his blacklist products. This is going to be useful for any and all of you at any point in your aging well journey. Obviously, aging is a privilege and we want to look our best doing it. And one of the things I appreciate, and I said this to him on the show, you'll hear it shortly, is that I love that he talks about do all the things that you can do at home first before coming to my office. And he gives you all the tips and the tricks and the tools to do that. So please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Tony Yoon. 
Hey, buddies. I hope you are enjoying this episode as much as I am. We're going to take a squeak, a little short break, so you can hear a word from our sponsors. I'm in my mid 40s and I have never felt more energized. I am training five times a week. I'm getting in three bike rides every single week. I recently reached a personal best of 15 neutral grip pull-ups, and I could have literally done it the next day if I wanted to. And I wanted to share with you what I've been doing that is making me feel so great. One of the cornerstones of my daily health regimen is Timeline Nutrition's MitoPure. MitoPure captures a pure form of the molecule urolithin A. This is a postbiotic nutrient that re-energizes your mitochondria, which are the cells that are responsible for making energy and widely considered a cornerstone of longevity. Research has also shown that individuals supplementing with urolithin A experience an increase in muscle strength and endurance without altering their diet or exercise routines, which is why I probably got the 15 PB, the personal best. I recorded a podcast with Dr. Anurag Singh, the scientist who discovered urolithin A, and after our conversation, I started taking it as a recovery tool after my weightlifting sessions. I take it as a supplement, but it also comes in powder form, which is really great for travel. And they've also now combined it with a protein powder. So you can kind of get the two for one deal there. And I've also been using their skincare line, which helps with the skin's collagen and elastin matrix, making the skin look plump and juicy and helping reduce the appearance of fine lines and wrinkles. Right now, Timeline Nutrition is offering my Betty's 10% off at TimelineNutrition.com forward slash better. That's T-I-M-E-L-I-N-E-N-U-T-R-I-T-I-O-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R. Use code better to get 10% off. Bond Charge is a holistic wellness brand with a huge range of products from blue light glasses to red light therapy to EMF management and circadian friendly lighting. My favorite products from Bond Charge is their infrared sauna blanket. I am also picking up some of their EMF blocking underwear and sweaters for when me and the hubs travel. I started using the blanket because, well, I like an easy way to burn calories and it burns up to 600 calories per session. And I was also looking to amp up my detoxification through sweat and as a way to improve my sleep. So I've been doing it for about 45 minutes every evening right before bedtime. It takes less than a minute to set up. It heats up in a few minutes and I typically just read or I do some breath work during my session. It also fits anywhere, which I love. You don't need a dedicated space in your home for it. It folds up. It goes with you wherever you are. Bonchar ships free worldwide on every sauna blanket. There's no hidden costs associated with it. Go to bondcharge.com forward slash better and use code better to save 15%. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E dot com forward slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code BETTER to save 15%. Dr. Tony Yoon, my dear friend, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And of, of course, Stephanie, just call me Tony. It's all good. I know. I just want to I just want to address you with the, you know, the accolades that you deserve, but we uh for sure will uh we're on a first name basis absolutely, but for the podcast, you know, got to got to show good. respect. Yeah. Hey, this good. is my buddy Tony. Let's chat. Yeah. <laughs> hey Tony, what's <laughs> Tell me everything about skin. So, we are talking about your new book. I have it right in front of me. Those of you that are watching on YouTube and you can see it behind and on um uh, in his background, Younger or Younger for Life. Yeah. Feel great 
and look your best with the new science of autojuvenation. I haven't heard that term before. I think that's something. Did you? Is that your term? That's because I made it up. That's because you made it up. All right. <laughs> it made <laughs> well, a lot of sense to me. Well, it makes a lot. Of, well, if you kind of bring, like, you know, yes. auto is the self, right? Like, talk, well, yeah. talk about talk about the word. Talk about this portmanteau that you've made. So, up. yeah, the term autojuvenation essentially means using your body's own regenerative abilities to rejuvenate itself because our body contains so much regenerative abilities. You just need to give it the right tools for it to do that. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize is that there's so much that your body can do. You don't need to have surgery. You don't need to get injections, but there's so much that you can do naturally to turn back the clock. And I strongly believe that if you follow these types of core principles of autojuvenation, that 80 to 90% of people don't won't feel the need to do these other types of procedures. And so the idea behind autojuvenation is five main things. It's what you eat, when you eat, nutritional supplements, skincare, and non-invasive treatments. Love this. I'm making notes as you talk. This is awesome. One of the things I think I appreciate uh, most about you in just knowing you over the years and in the way that you practice is that you almost have this, I'd, I, I'll, I'll say it in like a business sense, but then I'll explain what I mean. It's almost as like rejection marketing that you do. It's like, I actually don't want to see you, you know, I, yes. I don't. So you talk about all of these things uh, that the patient can potentially do by themselves to look and feel their best. And then, and only then after they've, you know, sort of majored in the majors, we'll say mm-hmm. with, you know, the, why you eat the, when you eat the supplements, the nutrients, the skincare regime, then we can, then, you know, that's the time to bring you into the office, which I so appreciate because I'm sure you see this in your profession. I'm, you know, it's not just, it's not just your profession. It's many uh, professions where it's just like, what can I get? Like what kind of, what can I put on people? How can I sort of maybe pull the proverbial wool over their eyes? And I, I think that you operate, when you operate from that place of integrity, I think that it, it automatically creates rapport and trust with what you're, what you're going to say. Yeah. I mean, you know, so I went through all traditional training. I did four years of medical school. I did three years of general surgery residency. I did two years of plastic surgery and and a year fellowship in, in Beverly Hills. And, you know, the path that I took to kind of get here was a little bit different in that I was a traditional plastic surgeon for a long time. And we, you know, we have this saying in, in surgery, to cut is to cure, or the only way to heal is with cold steel. And there's this belief in surgery that that the goal of being a surgeon is to bring people to the operating room. So like when you're a, a general surgeon, your goal ideally is to do some Whipple operations. Like that's like the cream of the crop. This is a 10 hour cancer operation that if you're so lucky that you can scrub into a Whipple, then you have made it. And in plastic surgery, that operation is probably the facelift, you know, because people may trust almost anybody to do their liposuction, but you know, if they're going to, you're going to trust somebody to do your facelift, that doctor better be dang good. <laughs> Uh, and so, Stephanie, for many years in my practice, I gauged my success in how many facelifts I was doing. And I thought I reached the pinnacle of success many years ago when I was having people fly in from all around the country to have facelifts with me. I had a, over a one-year waiting list. And then I had a patient who had a horrible, horrible complication. And that's what sent me on the road to really rethinking, am I doing the right thing with my practice and coming up with this idea of holistic plastic surgery and eventually this idea of autojuvenation? Wonderful. So let's talk a little bit about why and how we age. We can sort of generally, you, you, you go into a lot of detail in the book, but I wanted to focus on 
collagen degradation. So we're going to talk specifically about skincare and appearance. Of course, we could talk mm -hmm. about collagen in the joints and all those, but we're, you know, we're talking to a plastic surgeon, so we're going to talk <laughs> about the skin. So talk a little bit about why and how we age. What are some of the factors that contribute to that? And then we can kind of, we can double click on collagen and collagen degradation as we age as well. Yeah. So I kind of focus on five main causes of aging of the skin. The first cause is nutrient depletion. Essentially the food that we eat is not as nutritious as it used to be. And so that nutrient depletion can definitely impact the health of our skin. Number two, like you mentioned a second ago, collagen degradation. Our skin is composed about 70 to 80% of collagen and collagen is a part of our skin that causes our skin to feel nice and tight and thick and youthful and smooth. But as we get older, we lose about 1% of the thickness of collagen every year, starting in our mid to late 20s. Women, once they go through menopause, start losing about 2% of the thickness of collagen of their skin every year. And that's why you have some women who are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, and their skin can be literally tissue paper thin to the point where it can tear from a simple scratch. So collagen degradation, number two. Number three is chronic inflammation. Uh, chronic inflammation can be caused by multiple sources. The one I uh, focus on first is sugar. Fourth cause of aging of the skin is oxidation or free radicals. And that basically, these free radicals are these molecules that will that can damage our skin cells because they are unstable and they can damage the DNA of your skin. They are neutralized by antioxidants. And then the fifth cause of, of aging of the skin that I focus on is buildup of cellular waste. Uh, and that's where intermittent fasting can really come into play. Yes. And I found my name in your book, by the way, when we were talking, you're like, are you going to find, I wonder if you're going to find your name. And I, I did find, I will get to, we'll oh, get to, yeah, I was like, oh, there I am. So really appreciate that mention. Okay. So you said collagen degradation. I didn't actually realize that, you know, I understanding our muscle, like our capacity for muscle loss actually parallels that quite closely. So that was a, that was a learning for me. 1% per year degradation in collagen. I, I have a sort of knock-on question, and maybe this is, uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's right or not, but does elastin follow that as well? Do we see, because collagen and elastin, my understanding of elastin anyway, is like the matrix that yeah. sort of keeps the form or the structure in the skin. Does elastin also follow that pattern as well? So as the collagen is degrading, are we also seeing the elastin degrade at the same kind of rate? Yeah, it definitely degrades. Whether it's at the same rate of, as collagen, that I'm not sure. But definitely you get a breakdown of the elastin with the collagen. And that's something too, when we get into sugar, that, that sugar can really impact that as well. So it really is a combination of collagen, elastin. There are other parts of the skin too, that we start losing hyaluronic acid. That's a moisturizer of our skin that also, you know, we start losing that. And that's one reason why uh, hyaluronic acid uh, fillers, as well as hyaluronic acid-based serums and creams can be very helpful for the skin. So let's talk about sugar. This was also very eye-awakening. Sometimes we think about when we eat, the foods that we eat don't necessarily, we don't associate it with how our skin is looking. I mean, I know there's a yeah. lot of you know influencers and doctors such as yourself who are educating the masses on, yes, what you eat can actually show up on your skin. So talk a little bit about glycation, talk a little bit about what the, the chemical reaction is and just know that my audience there's super nerds like me so you can go as nerdy <laughs> as you would like on this so talk a little bit about what happens when we're ingesting excess sugar and what that does to the collagen and the elastin and the process of glycation generally 
So the idea really um, is that collagen, I'm sorry, is that sugar can impact our skin in two main ways. And once again, we're looking at chronic inflammation. There's a big difference between acute inflammation and chronic inflammation. And acute inflammation can actually be a very good thing. So if you get a cut on your skin, your body reacts that cut to heal it by creating acute inflammation. Laser treatments, chemical peels, microneedling, these all utilize acute inflammation to cause our skin to actually be younger afterwards. But it's chronic inflammation that is the main issue here. And sugar being a huge culprit of that, basically by two main mechanisms. The first mechanism, as you mentioned, is glycation. So the, the really the way that works essentially, the way I describe it is the collagen of our skin, they're like the logs of a log cabin. And when we're young, those logs are nice and strong, they're smooth, they're tight. And as we get older, those logs start to fray, they start to fall apart. Where sugar comes in is that sugar can actually bond to the collagen and the elastin in your skin. And when it bonds to the collagen and elastin in your skin, it can cause those log, those logs, that log cabin to stay permanently kinked, to basically it connects with them so that they cannot tighten up again. Uh, and these sugar collagen hybrids are caused are called advanced glycation end products or appropriately titled AG, and they are prematurely aging to your skin. And so really it's that direct. It's literally collagen bonding with the collagen and the elastin, causing them to, to become kink because these are fibers, okay, that you want them to be nice and tight, and that can cause premature aging. The second way that sugar causes premature aging of the skin is uh, through chronic insulin spikes. So we know that chronic sugar spikes can result in chronic insulin spikes. Chronic insulin spikes can lead to insulin resistance. Uh, that can lead to chronic inflammation of the skin as well. And there are studies that do show that people have a higher incidence of, let's say, acne if they have these chronic sugar spikes and they get insulin resistance developing as well. Uh, and so really the first thing, first thing for people who are looking to reduce the amount of something they eat to improve their skin is to be, reduce the amount of sugar that you eat, excuse me, uh, is to reduce the amount of sugar that you eat by reducing the amount of sugar by either reducing, let's say, the amount of sugar you drinks. I mean, there really, there was a study I, I read recently that found that 20% of the calories of the standard North American diet come from sugar-sweetened beverages. Oh my 20%. God. 20%. Yeah. So you're talking soda pop, you're talking energy drinks, you're talking fruit juices. And so that's for me, you know, with a lot of my followers with the first place I encourage them to start is just to stop drinking so many of the sugary drinks. It's interesting. Whenever I've put someone on a therapeutic ketogenic diet, so this is where you were mentioning my work in in your book. One of the things, actually, one of the the there's a few things that they'll report. Sometimes they will report sort of transient bad breath, almost like there's like a tin, like almost like a tin or like a metal type of taste in their mouth. But the other thing that they'll say is that they're breaking out in acne, and it's almost like it's a purge, right? So as you're sort of getting rid of some of the amylases and some of the enzymes sort of that are overpopulated because you're, you know, you've driven that through excess carbohydrate or excess sugar consumption, they can almost have this flare up of the acne. So it's interesting, or maybe worth noting, if you are someone who's trying to clean up their diet, and maybe you've said, okay, I'm going to try to reduce my sugar intake, maybe I'm going to have a transient, I'm going to sort of go low carbish, that you actually can get a little bit worse initially before you get better. And that's just the purging, that's sort of the body reading itself of some of those stored, you know, stored toxins, or even just the, the process of eliminating through the skin, which is a major, you know, it's a, a major excretory organ. 
Yeah, and that's true too. If you're switching a skincare routine, let's say if you're not doing a whole lot with skincare, sometimes starting on a new skincare routine can cause your skin to purge a little bit too. Mm. And that's something to keep in mind that that typically is a transient thing. Now, obviously at some point what's transient, you know, sometimes people just, if they're, they're putting products on their skin, it just don't work for them. You know, the question is, is how long does that transient thing last? And if it lasts more than a few weeks, then you do want to consider that maybe this just isn't purging. <laughs> maybe your skin doesn't like what you're putting on it. Right. Oh, that's good too. So there should be like a short, maybe Delta, like what would be sort of the time frame where you'd say, okay, this is purging. And then now this is just a, a constant, maybe we're moving from an acute to a chronic reaction or maybe chronic rejection of what you're putting on your face. What would be that timeline? Do you think? You know, everybody is different. I would say if it lasts longer than about two to three weeks, then that's when I would really start rethinking, okay, is this really the best thing for my skin? Uh, that being said, there's some people who take longer than that. You know, if you're starting on, let's say, a retinoid, um, like retinol or, or tretina, uh, tretinoin, that can literally take six to eight weeks for some people. But the problem, once again, is that everybody is a bit different. There are some people that will start these types of regimens, and their skin tolerates it beautifully. And there are others that, yes, you purge, you get the dryness, you get flaking, your skin doesn't look that good. In general, I give it two to three weeks, unless you're being followed, let's say, by a dermatologist a plastic surgeon or a, a skilled medical esthetician, they may tell you, hey, go a little longer because we're being real aggressive with your skin and, and it'll take a little bit longer. But if you're doing it on your own, then yeah, you give it maybe two to three weeks and I, I would then either stop what you're doing or maybe ask an, an expert, see what they think. Mm -hmm. Speaking of skin routines, you talk about the younger skin routine, there's sort of the basic one where you're like, this is going to, you know, help your skin by at least, you know, five, I think you said like it was five years, whenever I'm doing any type of skincare routine. And this is I've taken this from Instagram, because I've heard other people say this, I'm like, Oh, that's so that's exactly what I want. I want to look like a glazed donut. So I want, my skin, <laughs> I want my skin to be shiny, just like sort of the glaze on the top of the donut. And that may or may not work for everybody. But maybe you can outline sort of the basic skincare routine that you recommend for everyone. And I know in your book, you, you've put an appendix of products that you really like, brands that you really like. I would also like you to talk about your brand when I had the opportunity to try some of your products and they were really, really great. So oh, maybe you, you can talk about the skincare routine that everybody should, that was actually one of the questions from my audience. I pulled my Instagram and they're like, just tell us what we should do for the morning and night because there's so much stuff. Should I be doing copper? Should I be doing vitamin C? Should I be doing hyaluronic acid? Like what are all the, what are the basics that everybody should do? And then we can add some complexity as, yes. as we, as we go forward. So there is a basic skincare routine that I recommend everybody consider. And this is really something that if this is all you do, that's all you technically need to do. And just like you said, we actually took people who really weren't doing a ton of skincare. We put them on this routine. It literally took two minutes a day. And they found that after the span of two months, we actually surveyed people when they looked at their before and after photos, and they said that they, that they looked about five years younger. So now, if you do this routine, Stephanie, you're not going to look five years younger because your skin's too nice, okay? But other people who maybe have a little more aging of their skin, they can really see some changes with it um, because it will reverse a lot of the aging. So you start off in the morning, you want to cleanse your skin. You want to choose your, a cleanser that's appropriate for your skin type. So One you cleanser have, or two cleansers? Uh, start with one, okay, one. in the morning, but we'll talk about possibly two at, at night. Okay. So you start off with a cleanser appropriate for your skin type. If you've got oily skin, then you might, you want to look ideally at more of a foaming cleanser. If you've got drier or more sensitive skin, then look for a more milky or a hydrating cleanser. 
Second step in the morning is to apply an antioxidant serum. I mentioned earlier that one of the main causes of aging of our skin is oxidation or free radicals. And these are essentially uh, molecules that can damage the DNA of your skin and they are neutralized by antioxidants. The most popular antioxidant, both by mouth and by, by application is vitamin C. So vitamin C basically neutralizes free radicals. And so after cleansing the skin, I recommend using a vitamin C serum. Here's a little hack for you. If you combine vitamin C and vitamin E, you can get a synergistic effect. And there are some skincare lines that do have a combination of vitamin C and vitamin E. That's one that we have. That's actually our top selling product at Yoon Beauty is our CE antioxidant serum. Now, vitamin C and antioxidants are made to protect your skin from free radicals. You can get some other benefits. They may help to lighten dark spots a little bit. They may brighten your skin a little bit, but mainly they're used to protect your skin. After you apply the, the antioxidant serum, then I do recommend, especially if you're going to be out, to use a sunscreen. Now, we can talk about sunscreens because, you know, we have friends who are natural so medicine docs. There's so who, much controversy or controversy. Yeah, so or we can definitely yeah. talk about that because I've yes. got my opinion and I mm -hmm. think it's fairly measured. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, if you're going to be on the sun, I do recommend using a sunscreen, at least SPF 30. We can talk about the different kinds and stuff like that. Okay. In the morning, if that's all you do, you're good. Okay. Cleanse, antioxidant serum, sunscreen. In the evening, super important, you have to cleanse your skin. You know, For those of you who only want to wash your face once a day, then do it at night because you have to get rid of the day's worth of dirt and grime and pollution. Now, as far as a double cleanse, a lot of people will double cleanse at night to get rid of makeup, okay? So you know, you've been doing podcast interviews all day. You want to wash that makeup off. A lot of people will start with either a micellar water to help clean off the makeup or with a makeup removing oil cleanser. Yes, that's what uh, I do. So yeah, good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that helps to get rid of the makeup helps get rid of the dirt. And then you follow that up with a traditional cleanser like the one you used in the morning. Okay, you can really get your skin nice and clean. After that, I recommend an anti aging cream. And there's two that I would recommend. Um, the one that most doctors will recommend dermatologists and plastic surgeons is a retinol. Retinol is a derivative of vitamin A, and it comes in prescription strength, which is retin A or tretinoin and non-prescription strength, which is retinol. Now, interestingly, the reason why, and, and I don't really share this on most of the interviews, but because I know you're into the details of this type of stuff, retinol actually is will turn into Retin-A after you put it on the skin. Okay, so retinol, is, the reason why it's over the counter and it's not prescription is because it's technically inactive. But once you apply it on the skin, it switches, there's a chemical reaction that occurs and it goes from retinol to retinal, and then from retinal to tretinoin, which is the actual prescription strength. And the reason why tretinoin is only available via prescription is because it's actually active. Whereas retinol turns into it, but when you apply it, it's inactive at the time. And are the strengths comparable? Like if you have a retinol? No. 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 Okay, let's clarify that. Yeah. Because so tretinoin or retin-A is, is available in three different strengths, 0.025%, 0.05%, and 0.1%. Whereas retinols can go anywhere from like one to 5%. Uh, so it's very different. It's not apples to apples, but, but suffice it to say, retinol eventually becomes tretinoin. The prescription strength essentially becomes that same substance after it has converted into, into it after you apply it on your skin. So anyways, if you ask plastic surgeons or dermatologists around the country, if you could pick one anti-aging cream, they would pick retinol. And the reason why that is so important it's because it's been so studied. And there are studies that show that using tretinoin, so the prescription strengths, the studies show that it can help to 
thicken the collagen of your skin. It can reduce fine lines. It can lighten dark spots. And it can even reverse early pre-skin cancers, which is something a lot of people don't realize. You know, wow, if you've got a history of skin cancers, then, then the prescription strength can actually potentially reverse early pre-skin cancers. The problem is you're never going to know what it reverses because it just won't come up. Um, but that's something if you have a history of skin cancer, I do recommend. Now, the problem with retinol and tretinoin is that it can be irritating to the skin. And some people just don't tolerate it well. You know, you can try the purging. You, know, you apply it, you're going to start purging. That's normal. And the idea is that you get active inflammation to eventually get rid of chronic inflammation. It's this kind of weird thing where you purge your body, it gets inflamed initially, and then eventually it settles down and then it actually will chronically reduce or it will long-term reduce chronic inflammation. It's just like exercise. Um, exercise acutely, you know, yes. gives you heart arrhythmias, increases your blood pressure, increases your blood lipids. It actually looks really bad on paper when you, <laughs> when you exercise, well, but the long-term, you know, sort of adaptation is that your heart rate lowers, you have better blood pressure, you have better respiratory blood perfusion, all the things. And so much of this is the horm hermetic effect. We just don't talk about it that way in plastic surgery and dermatology. But yeah, so anyways, retinol would be the the first choice. But if you've got real sensitive skin, a lot of people don't tolerate retinol that well, in which case the one that I recommend is called Bakuchiol. Bakuchiol essentially is a is a alternative to retinol. And there was a study, a relatively small study that compared the two head to head and its anti-aging benefits and found very similar benefits from Bakuchiol as you get from retinol. But the one difference is that you had less irritation of the skin with Bakuchiol. And so that's become a real hot ingredient now over the last couple of years in skincare. We recently introduced our own peptide and Bakuchiol moisturizer because we knew that we were, you know, our number two product selling, top selling product is our retinol moisturizer, but we knew that there are people who just can tolerate it. And the Bakuchiol definitely is a really good option for those who can't. So for a night, once again, you cleanse your skin, you get rid of all that dirt and grime and makeup and everything, and then you apply an anti-aging cream. Retinol is the easiest one to find for people who, let's say, don't have access um, to a dermatologist or med spa, or they are on a you know real strict budget, then you can usually find a pretty inexpensive retinol at department stores and things. And then if you want to apply a, a moisturizer on top of that, feel free, but you don't have to. There is this fallacy that using moisturizer will reverse aging of your skin. And it just doesn't, you know, moisturizer essentially is a, is for comfort only. And yes, if you apply it on your skin and your skin is so dry, it can help to plump your skin. It will make you look a little younger, but it's not going to technically physically make your skin younger. Like let's say retinol and Bakuchiol may be able to. And really that's it at night. Cleanse, anti-aging cream, a moisturizer as needed. And then the other step that I would recommend once a week, if you have sensitive skin, Two, twice a week, if you've got quote unquote normal skin would be to exfoliate your skin. And you can exfoliate your skin in one of a couple of different ways. You can use a gentle exfoliating scrub, or you could use like an enzyme type of a peel. There's a lot of over-the-counter kind of peel type agents that you can get. Both of these will help to get rid of that upper layer of dead skin cells. Is that and like AHA, AHA, Yeah, like AHA peels, yeah. Okay. Yeah, or okay. glycolic. Yeah, yeah. Just kind of over-the-counter stuff, light stuff. You don't have to go to a, to a dermatologist or a esthetician to have that done. But then, yeah, so it's important to realize that what that does essentially is it gets rid of that upper layer of dead skin cells. And what that will then do is send a cellular signal to the deeper layer of skin cells to turn over more quickly. When we're younger and our skin is nice and youthful and smooth and taut, our skin turns over once every about six to eight weeks. But as we get older, that 
that process takes much longer and it starts taking eight weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks for the skin to turn over. By regularly exfoliating your skin, you can cause that that turnover process to start getting back into gear and turning over more quickly. That is awesome. So this this is like a basic routine for anyone. Anybody can do this morning and night. So the morning is the cleanse, antioxidant, the sunscreen, which we're going to put a little asterisk because we're going to come back to that. And then the evening is a cleanse again. So, you know, either the same one that you use in the morning or if you have like I have makeup on right now, so I'm going to want to take this stuff off at the, in the evening. Add the retinoid, so the retin either the retinol or the trentinoin, and then mm-hmm. optional moisturizer, but it's just for comfort. And then once or twice a week, you're you're exfoliating with either a mechanical, like a, a mechanical like a scrub, scrub, a or an en- scrub, or an enzymatic scrub. Perfect. Yep. Okay. That's exactly it. Hey, Bettys, I hope you are enjoying this episode as much as I am. We're going to take a squeak, a little short break, so you can hear a word from our sponsors. The Apollo wearable was developed by neuroscientists and physicians for less stress, better sleep, more energy, relaxation, and focus. Using the Apollo wearable gives you the same physical and mental benefits of mindful practices like breathwork and meditation, like improved focus and concentration, balanced emotions, reduced feelings of stress and anxiety, and more restful sleep. And this is great news for someone like me who struggles on a regular basis to meditate. And Apollo is unlike other fitness and health wearables because it doesn't just track your health biometrics, it actively improves them by strengthening your nervous system. Apollo wearable users experienced up to 40% less stress and feelings of anxiety on average, up to 19% more time in deep sleep, 11% increase in HRV on average, and up to 25% more focus and concentration. I personally wear it to sleep every single night and have been doing so over the last several months. And I too am happy to report that I have noticed better HRV or heart rate variability and my deep sleep is off the charts. Excellent. So if you want to experience some of these benefits as well, head on over to apolloneuro.com forward slash better. That's A-P-O-L-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com forward slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout to get $50 off at checkout. Can I come back to the, can I come back to retinol just for one minute? Cause as you were sure. talking, I, I, this is what happens when I get into a conversation with friends. I have 400 questions. This is also the function of being a pod, podcaster. Yeah. Cause now I have 400 questions in my head. Okay. So retinol, we were talking about one to 5% strength that you can find over the counter. And the reason why we find it over the counter is because it's, it's inactive technically. And then yes. the prescription is the tretinoin 0.025.05.1. Do we have any understanding of the, prescription of the retinol, a comparison to once it has been activated, so retinol and then the tretinoin, is there any comparable, does it look like the 0.025 tretinoin once it's been, if you have like a 1% no. retinol, we, we don't know. No, because it comes down to the formulation. So for example, you know, our retinol moisturizer is 2.5%. Um, but it's gentle on the skin. It's made with natural and organic ingredients. And people may get a little bit of skin irritation initially from it. They will probably get a little bit of flaking. But you know, we have a medical grade skincare line that we do sell through our office um, that has 1% retinol with theirs, but their formulation is so much stronger than ours. And you put that on your skin and it feels like a 0.05% tret. 
So unfortunately, and people ask all the time, you know, well, does your 2.5% retinol is same as this 2.5? Unfortunately, it doesn't quite work that way because I do believe that the formulation can make a big difference there. Okay. So it's like the company, like it's the company's sort of blending of different ingredients, maybe within the, within the formulation that's going to change the strength, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. When you're dealing with prescriptions, so when you're looking at prescription strength, tretinoin, retin-A essentially, then yes, that is going to be uh, the same no matter what brand that you get, because you now that's going to be a regulated product. Standardized. Uh, when you're yeah. dealing with over-the-counter cosmetics, you know, they'll tell you a percentage and hopefully that's accurate, but it doesn't necessarily, it's not something that that I know of that's ever been regulated. And it's not something that's going to stay consistent with you know, if you switch from a 2.5% of one brand to a 2.5 in another brand, it's not necessarily going to get you the same result. Okay. And so the other the other question I had is you were talking about, is it Bacuchul? How do you say it? Bacuchulio? Bacuchial. 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 Yeah, there uh, you go. Bacuchial. So Bacuchial and retinol, so the over-the-counter, those can be comparable with each other. Do we know, is it a same thing, 1% of Bacuchial or is it 100% Bacuchial? What is the... Or, so or yeah, I don't, but Kuchel, I don't think that, I don't know that I've ever seen it being um, used in a certain percentage strength like that. I think like okay. most things, it's just an ingredient. And yes, you know, I think when you look at the backs of products in general, the ingredients that are listed in the order that it is and of how much is essentially is in there. Okay. And so if you do see, let's say, oh, I'm going to buy this Bacuchel cream and Bacuchel is like the last thing on the ingredients list, then that's a likely sign that it's not in a very high concentration. The higher concentration it is in general, the closer that will be to the front of the ingredients list. Okay, that's that's a good that's a good sort of guidepost to think about. Okay, so let's come back now to the sunscreen. You and I have friends, colleagues that are vehemently, vehemently opposed to sunscreen, sunblock. Actually, well, actually, let's let's just dis- let's distinguish we'll talk between about that. those. There's two kinds. There's yes. two kinds, and I would like your. I mean, you've obviously recommended sunscreen, so you know I'm going to deduce that you think that that is an important aspect in terms of aging let's ta- let's explore cuz i also find that i i'm pulled in both directions right so i don't yeah. want to be slathering my face with these endocrine disrupting chemicals all the time or my body for that matter and i also think that the sun is important but also the dose and the intensity really matters so i find myself sort of oscillating between these two groups like yeah, i yeah. you know i want to look good like i want to age well i want my skin to look great i also want the vitamin d and the you know and the benefits that the sun gives us but i don't want to be baking out there between 10 and 2 and you know like yeah. but you know at noon and you know i have you know like the you know those ladies from the 70s they had those like uh, reflectors that they were trying to get the tan on i'm not i'm not doing you that you don't want but, you don't have leathery skin and in, in 20 years from now come no, on no no i don't want to do that so let's talk walk us through maybe the differing thought like the different yeah. camps and then how you've sort of come to where you've landed with sunscreen yeah so i think like most things in life the place to be is somewhere in the middle so we've got friends of ours who and i did a podcast with a guy really nice guy who you know he says well i put lard on my skin what do you think about that and i'm in the sun all the time and i just use lard and it's like uh i don't i think that would smell funny but okay <laughs> and, and then i have friends of mine who are dermatologists and they will put on sunscreen in the morning and, they, and, and even if they're sitting in a dark basement inside day, yeah they they're going to be put putting on... their sunscreen on yes yes so yeah. i think <laughs> so i think that like anything in life there truly is a good middle ground now when you look at sunscreen, first of all, so there are two types of sun protection, essentially. There's sunscreens, which are chemical-based, 
and their sunblocks, which are physical-based. Physical-based sunblocks here in the United States, there's only two types. There's zinc oxide and titanium dioxide. And these work basically by physically blocking the rays of the sun from hitting your skin. They basically sit on the surface of your skin, they block those rays, and they can be very effective. The knock on physical sunblocks, though, is that they can leave a, a, a whitish kind of color on your skin, a whitish hue. And back when I was growing up, you know, we would see lifeguards who'd have this white paste on their nose, and that was a physical sunblock. So for people, especially people who have darker skin, people's, people of color, not very good if you put that on your skin and your face looks different color than it normally does. But the the benefit of those sunblocks is that they just sit on the surface of your skin. They don't get necessarily absorbed into your bloodstream. Now, sunscreens are chemical-based. So those need to be absorbed through the skin. And when the sun hits the, the, the UV rays hit your skin, they help to basically create a chemical reaction to essentially block the damaging effects of those rays. There's some people who believe that, that that can create free radicals. There's some evidence to show that as well. The problem with sunscreens, number one, there's a lot of them out there, although here in the United States, it's a very limited number compared to other countries. And two of them are, are ones that are considered potential endocrine, endocrine disruptors, uh, oxybenzone and octanoxate. And so there are people who have genuine concerns about how much of this we put on our skin. And there are actual studies uh, that have been done where they actually test the urine and wastewater, finding that almost everybody appears to have oxybenzone in their bloodstream. Wow. Hmm. So that is an endocrine disruptor. Now, the benefit of a chemical sunscreen is that you can make it into a really a fairly fine formulation where you put it on your skin, it feels super light, and it's not going to feel greasy necessarily. And at the same time, it doesn't discolor your skin like a mineral, like a physical-based mineral sun sunblock would. And so, really, my recommendation in general, and, and this comes from, you know, I looking at it from a holistic overall perspective is I do recommend in general sun protection, especially if you're going to be out, you know, as a plastic surgeon, I have had, I've done a lot of reconstructive surgery in the past. And I can't tell you how many patients I've seen come into my office and they go, yeah, you know, I get a lot of sun. In general, I wear my sunscreen and I got this little dot on my nose. I'm going to go see a dermatologist about it. And then they come back to see me a month or two later and half their nostril is gone. I've had, I've had friends of mine with huge holes in their nose, huge holes in their forehead, parts of their eyelid being removed. It's a big deal, you know, and it is very, very disfiguring. You, you see somebody like Hugh Jackman, who I think is probably the most talented person in Hollywood, and he's had multiple skin cancers. I fear for that day when it's going to be one of those cancers that's going to disfigure his face because it's like at some point he probably will unfortunately get there. So I think it, the thing is, the fact is you do not want a skin cancer on your face, period. That being said, I also understand there are a lot of therapeutic benefits of the sun. You know, going out, it helps with your circadian rhythm, getting the sun in your face. You know, I'm in Detroit, you're in Toronto. Man, come February, it's so dark and dreary. <laughs> Slim family, pickings we, with the sun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, we go to the Caribbean or somewhere down south every winter because you just got to get, and it's therapeutic. You need that. So I think that there's really a, a happy medium there somewhere, you know, get, to get up in the morning and to get the sun on your face and to get your circadian rhythms in line, all that. That's fine. Like, I don't, I don't think most people would complain about that. But at the same time, to go out and not wear sunscreen, especially be out, get burned and all that. My God, you do not want a, a skin cancer on your face ever. So what do I recommend in general? Okay. My recommendation in general is for your children to use a physical sunblock for them. 
do not, number one, do not use a spray. I see so many people spraying their kids at the beach and they're breathing in these chemicals. Don't use that. If you have a spray, spray it into your hand and then apply it to your children. Kids in general, depending on the age they are, my kids now will care. But most kids, they're seven, eight, they're at the beach. They don't care if they've got this whitish stuff on their skin. They're just happy running in the water and playing in the sand and everything. If, however, you are a person of color, if you've got darker skin, and then I would recommend for the face to use a chemical sunscreen. There are certain ones that are safe, like avobenzone and Megzoral XL. Those are two that have not been found to be endocrine disruptors. I would use that for your face. If you're okay for your body to use a, a mineral or a physical-based sunblock, then feel free to do that. Understand that that's going to change the color of your skin a little bit. And then for people who are Caucasian like yourself, then I would, in general, stay with the physical sunblocks. If you find that they're too thick and you want to use a chemical sunscreen for your face, then by all means do that. Once again, use one with Megzoral or Avobenzone. I've often found, I think Australians, like I think Hugh Jackman is Australian if I'm correct, but it's uh, the Australians have to be very concerned about sunscreen because it is so hot there. And I remember, you know, to your point around the skin cancer, I remember watching, it was a behind the scenes thing for the greatest showman. And he had just gone to the doctor and some, I think he had something removed from his nose and the doctor and he said, Oh, I have this final thing, you know, final audition for the greatest showman. We're singing the song. And he's like, you can't sing. And then they get to the audition and then he starts singing because he's like getting so into yeah. you know the song and it's very moving. And then his face is bleeding. So as oh. he's singing, he undid the stitches that you know, oh, the doctor geez. sort of undid the, you know, took out the the tumor or whatever it was. And then his face was bleeding as he's singing, you know, this like great, you know, they're, they're the big song for the show. So, so that's, yeah, I think that that's w wise words. I tend to, I tend to fall where you are. I think that there's a lot of benefit fit to the sun. We, you know, even there's taking a vitamin D supplement is not the same as creating vitamin D on the surface of the skin and the dose and the intensity really matters. So when I typically get my sun is early in the morning, the sun's usually at a very low solar angle. I'm having a cup of coffee on the porch. I've, you know, and then I, and then my, I've, I've applied some sunscreen on there as well. And there's this meme, you've probably seen it as well, because you are the the king of, of memes and things. There's this picture of this trucker, where I think he always had the, I think it might have been, he was that the window was only open only on one side. So oh, one yeah. half of his face is very aged. So it's, you know, it's like, you know, very uh, wrinkly. And then the other side that wasn't getting exposed, even through a window, and you can make the argument, oh, well, the light refracts, and there's like all this different, you know, it's not the so, same as being outside. And but the two sides of the face are very, very different. So the way that works is that our car windows will block UVB rays. So there's UVA and UVB rays. And it's very easy to remember which are which because UVA rays are aging. UVB yep. rays are burning. Burning. So you can be in a car all day and, and not have sunblock on and not get burned because those UVA, UVB rays will be blocked by your car windows. But the UVA rays are still penetrating and that will cause, once again, premature aging of the skin, but it can also contribute to skin cancers. And so 
That's the other thing is that even if you are not getting burned necessarily through your car windows, you can definitely get that that solar radiation and that can definitely be damaging to your skin. And so, I mean, I think overall, you know, I don't wear sunscreen every day. I'm not my dermatologist colleagues and they're probably horrified if they hear me say this. But at the same time, if I'm out and especially if, you know, you're going to be out in a place where you know you're going to be getting some pretty intense rays, then by all means, I put the sunblock on. And I think it's so important to do it for your kids and to get your kids kind of into that routine because we've done this with our kids all the time, starting from young, just being careful on the ones, you know, obviously on the the products that you use for them. But it, but what we don't want is for them to be like some of us and our ancestors where, you know, they got just burned when they were young. And now they're, let's say, Hugh Jackman's age, and they're getting these skin cancers coming out. I see a lot of patients like that who say, geez, I haven't gotten any sun the last 10 years. Why am I getting these skin cancers popping up and stuff? And it's, it's from when they were younger, and they just got so many burns and baked in the sun and stuff. Yeah. And you said SPF 30 at a minimum? So SPF 30 will block 97% of the sun's rays. And so, you know, when you get up to about 30, you can only, you know, if you go from 30, SPF 30 to SPF like 100, you're going to add literally one or 2% extra protection. And so to spend the extra money on, let's say, higher than SPF 30 may not be all that that helpful. Now, if let's say you're you're already feeling the effects of the sun, you're getting burned a little bit, then yeah, if you want to add a, go to 100 from 30, by all means do that. But in general, SPF 30 is is sufficient for the vast majority of situations. Awesome. All right. So we're going to assume that people have gone through your book, they are eating well, they are fasting, they have reduced their sugar, and they're still feeling like okay, I still am not satisfied, even though maybe that's gotten me 80% of the way there. I still want to do some refinement, we'll say. So in your book, you sort of categorize all of these different issues. I'd like to I'd like to go through some of them. So we've been talking a little bit about age spots, sunspots, liver spots. I too, I know that you can't see me right now, but I have like, if you kind of you know, I have, and I also have makeup on, but I have like a little bit of like hyperpigmentation here from those years when I would spend in Greece and I would, you know, come back looking, you know, very, very dark. I had like lots of, you know, yeah. melanin was like on point, but starting to see some of that like hyperpigmentation. And so I, I can tell you what I've been doing, but maybe you can tell me what I should be doing in terms of those age spots. And then the other, the other, I know we were talking about the face a little bit, but is it also true? Like we, whenever we're putting on sunscreen, I always put like whatever's left. I always like yeah. kind of rub it on my hands because that's also kind of like a thin yeah. Good practice to do. Is and like your just neck from... and your chest. So you, yes, don't forget your chest. neck and your chest. So when you're yep. doing skincare, whatever you have on your skin, unless it's prescription strength retin-A, that's going to be too strong to put on your neck or your chest. Okay. But good. anything else good. in general, I always recommend put it on your face first, bring things down to your neck. And then if you can bring it also even down to your chest, because there's so many of my patients I see where their skin, their face is pristine, the skin, their neck has sun, some damage, and then the chest is a whole other story. Mm. And honestly, you only need to compare the skin of your butt to the skin of your face or your hands to know like not getting the sun can really keep that skin looking nice and taut and youthful. (laughs) And we have, yeah. we don't have any skin, but we don't have any butt skin transplants. I don't think in the plastic no. surgery world yet. Right? Yeah. Okay. Not yet. Uh, uh, not but yet. yeah. But for these spots, basically, you know, the term age spots, sunspots, liver spots, they're all basically different terms for the same thing. You know, some people think, oh, I've got liver spots. What's wrong with my liver? No, the reason why I call liver spot is because it's brown and somebody decided, oh, it looks like the color of liver. Mm. So these are basically spots that are caused by UV radiation hitting your skin. And then your skin reacts by clumping up melanin, creating this usually fairly superficial spot. 
The simplest way to treat spots like that would be to use a brightening cream. And there's certain ingredients that I would encourage you to look for. The first one would be kojic acid. Second one would be niacinamide. Another one could be licorice root extract. These are all ones that are very safe for your skin. They work nicely to help to, to gradually lighten that pigment. That can, however, take a minimum of two months to really start seeing changes with it, but those are very safe to use long-term. You know, we have a Yoon Beauty brightening cream that I use every morning, and it's just to help kind of keep that unwanted pigment down. But if you really want to tackle that pigment and get rid of it, and you're like, well, I don't want to wait two months, or I really want to see a bigger change much more quickly, then I encourage people to consider IPL. IPL stands for intense pulse light. And essentially it's using light energy to target the, the melanin and to actually damage that melanin so that it actually will turn darker. And then usually within about a week or so, it actually will slough off. And this is just light energy. There's no anesthetics involved. There's nothing really more natural. It's just light energy. I mean, there's no chemicals or anything. The good thing about IPL too, it's relatively good bang for your buck. There's no downtime to it. So you don't have to take time off of work or anything. And most med spas and dermatologists and some plastic surgeon's offices have an IPL device. IPL is not that expensive to buy. It may cost $200,000 to buy a laser, maybe a close to $100,000 to buy an IPL device. And so because of that, it's a little bit less cost than if you're going to get a more aggressive, let's say, laser treatment. Um, and so usually with IPL, it's something you can find places locally that will do that for you. Usually you will need a series of treatments, maybe three to four, to reduce the pigment to the point where you probably won't see hardly any of it. And just so we're clear, I, I understood you, but just in case there's misinterpretation, the cost of an IPL is not $100,000. That's the cost of the <laughs> doctor. That's the doctor's yes. cost to purchase the laser or the light yep. machine. And then you, what would be like an, do you have like a general idea of what that cost might be? Yeah, it depends on how much of an area that you treat. So I would say it would probably start around $150 to $200 for a smaller area, let's like, let's say your hands, or let's say, you know, just your face. But if you want to do like the face, the neck, the chest and the hands, and you could get up there, you know, maybe six, $700 potentially. And like three to four times you're saying usually to start seeing some results. Yes. And most places will sell packages. So you can like buy a package of three or four. And that way, you can usually get discounts that way as well. So really yeah. for bang for your buck, you know, I mentioned earlier, the cost of the device, it's important because the cost of the device that they are, the technology that they're using is going to be passed off onto you, the patient. So if it is a more expensive device, like let's say a certain type of a laser, that's going to be one reason why it's more expensive, but that doesn't mean that you're going to get more bang for your buck. You know, there are less expensive treatments that can get you really nice changes that cost the doctor very little to actually perform on you then you could get definitely better bang for your buck. Great. All right. So now we, I want to move on to sagging, sinking, and dropping. I was watching Bethany Frankel, who I think, I actually really appreciate her honesty with everything. She's great. She, I think she was saying that she had, I want to say it was Botox in her masseter. Mm-hmm. And she was saying that because she had this procedure, maybe it was, I can't remember what it, maybe to give her more of like a, an angled face, but now she feels like she's lost so much volume, obviously, like the master's paralyzed, it's, it's going to atrophy. But now that she has all this sort of loose skin that where, you know, that you, that fit around where the master yeah. was. So maybe there's that situation, or maybe it's just a function of aging, like maybe you haven't had an intervention like that. What are some of the options that we have for the sagging, the sinking, and the drooping and the dropping? 
So it's tough. And actually, interestingly, you know, back before I, I wrote a paper back in, I co-wrote a paper back in 2004 called the Volumetric Facelift. And this was, I did my fellowship out in Beverly Hills and the plastic surgeon I worked with out there was really a pioneer in facial plastic surgery. So he taught me when I was out there back in 03 to 04, that the face ages in three dimensions and how he rejuvenated the face in three dimensions. Uh, and it was a combination of lifting with added volume using your own fat. And so we wrote this paper in 2004. It became one of the seminal papers to explain facial aging in three dimensions. Before that, we always looked at just lifting what has sagged, essentially. Um, and so what has happened now is that that has, you know, in plastic surgery, a little becomes a little of a good, it becomes a good thing. A little of plastic surgery becomes a good thing, but people aren't happy with that. So they end up doing too much. And so you've got these people in Hollywood with these overly pumped up pillow faces, these lips that are huge. And some people think that it looks like good, even though they look completely unnatural. And so the idea that- Pictures, like in pictures or in two dimensional, like on Instagram, you might say, wow, Kylie- looks so beautiful. And then, you know, then you see sort of the paparazzi, not to disparage anyone here, but then you sort of see, you know, paparazzi photos of her and you're like, oh no, she's like 20. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the problem is that you just, people get things that are overdone because they think, oh, if I do a little of this, it looks good. A lot of it must look great. great. Yeah. 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 And it's like, no, you go, you end up going too far. And sometimes you know, because you may get a little at a time, you just never know it. You don't realize until it's too late that you've done too much. And that was something that Courtney Cox has recently admitted to that she's like, yeah, initially I had filler and it looked pretty good. And at some point I just kept going and I didn't realize it until people started telling me like, hey, look, you've got it. You've gone way too much. Mm-hmm. So really with, with the droopiness, that is something that loss of volume can contribute to the droopiness. There have been treatments, you know, you're talking about Bethany Frankel, where she had Botox injected into the master muscle, which is a muscle on the side of the jaw. I I started doing that back in 0304, mainly because I had enough Asian patients. And in Korea, that muscle tends to be quite wide in a lot of people. I'm not sure why, but for some reason, we are genetically predisposed to wider jawlines there. And so that was something that doctors used to actually shave the muscle down. That was a real bloody operation. With the advent of Botox, you can inject Botox into that muscle. It will cause that muscle to, to become weakened and eventually atrophy. And it sounds like that's what happened to Bethany. But anyways, the the way to treat loose skin, you know, we mentioned earlier the idea of holistic plastic surgery, using plastic surgery as a last resort. Really, the one thing that that I cannot help you with non-surgically is when there is a lot of excess skin, whether that's excess skin that's really hanging from the neck, whether that's a ton of extra skin in the upper eyelid, sometimes people can't even see that well, whether you've had, maybe you've had four children and there's skin that's just hanging from your tummy and you get rashes and sores underneath. There's no cream, there's no lotion, there's no food you can eat that will make that go away. That's when surgery, unfortunately, is the only option. However, there is loose and a good skin option. that you can get. A great option. And it at can that be point. very reasonable. Yeah. And yeah, people yeah. can get a really nice change out of it. Yeah. But there are things you can do before you get to that point that can definitely help. And right now, the, the gold standard for non-invasive skin tightening is probably the Morpheus 8. Morpheus 8 is radio frequency microneedling. This is something that I get done underneath my neck uh, every couple of months. Is that for like, um, the, is that for the, what do they call it? The twist? This is tail? just for skin tightening. Just oh, for skin tightening. But women will okay. say that they have like a little, what is that? What is it? What's the derogatory? Like, like a, a platysmal band? 
Yeah, it's it's there's like a there's like a dropping. They almost call it like a turkey oh, gobble. A turkey, or neck? A turkey neck. Yeah, turkey, turkey neck. gobble. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's okay, more so loose skin. That's that Morbius uh, may not be powerful enough for that. Okay, um, but it's for somebody who's let's say in their 30s, their 40s, maybe their 50s, and they're just noticing things are getting a little bit loose, not to the point where it's sagging, you know, and you've got just this loose skin that you can like waddle around. Mm-hmm. That unfortunately, the only option is surgery. But if you've got enough where you're noticing, yeah, things are getting a little loose, and I want to create a nice tightening effect to it, then the Morpheus 8 definitely is a gold standard right now. And then the way that that works essentially is it creates acute inflammation or acute trauma. So we talked earlier about hormesis and the idea that you do a small amount of trauma can actually be rejuvenating to the body. Well, that really is how all the lasers, the chemical peels and other treatments work is that you create a controlled trauma to the collagen of your skin, that collagen gets damaged, it denatures. And then when it heals, it heals in a tighter fashion. It's like those laws of that log cabin get put back together and tightened up for you. And lasers do that using light energy. Chemical peels do that using uh, enzymes and, and acids. And microneedling does that by creating a physical trauma to your skin by creating a needle poke into the skin. Okay. And so microneedling being a great bang for your buck procedure where you are creating acute trauma to the superficial skin that causes that collagen to become damaged in a controlled fashion. And when that collagen heals, once again, those laws at log cabin are nice and tight. Morpheus 8 takes that to the next level. So you make the poke in the skin with the microneedling, but that needle in Morpheus 8 is insulated all the way up to the bottom of the the tip of that needle. And the tip of that needle emits radio frequency energy that creates heat in the deep skin, and that can cause the skin to once again get, get damaged, acute trauma, and that causes the skin to actually tighten up. And studies show that if you heat the, the deep skin where the superficial skin's at about 42 degrees Celsius, that can cause that skin to tighten up afterwards. So you're heating up the elastin and the collagen with Morpheus. Yes. Yes. And that's how lasers work to tighten up the skin. It's just that these are different modalities. Like, So lasers can work to tighten up the skin by creating the heat in the deeper skin. Unfortunately, the original lasers, like the CO2 lasers, had to do that um, because they're the the chromophore, meaning what the laser targets was water. Okay, so lasers work by targeting a specific color and creating energy like heat based off that color. So some lasers, the color is red, you know, vascular lasers. So if you've got somebody who's got telangiectasias, little uh, blood vessels that they don't like, you can zap those those telangiectasias because with lasers that target the red color of the telangiectasias. Other lasers, like let's say lasers for tattoos, will target the color of that tattoo, okay? And damaging basically the, the pigment in that color, causing your body to eventually like get rid of it. Um, the original lasers, the target color was the color of water, believe it or not. You know, now we look at it and go, well, water doesn't have a color. Well, there technically is a color. We just can't see it. And so those lasers would then target water. What they would do then is they would then heat the water, which is throughout our whole skin. So you would burn the skin all the way down, get the heat into the deeper skin eventually. And that caused the skin to tighten up. Hmm. But obviously that was a horrifying experience for a lot of people because to get the heat to the deeper skin, you had to burn all the skin on the surface and that would create definite problems. So, so Morpheus 8 basically then will create heat in the deeper skin by tra- by using that little needle poke. And then that radio frequency energy heats the deep skin, causing that skin to, to tighten up. Okay. So let's talk about some of the 
thing. Okay, so I love that microneedling because I have a little face, a little dermal roller that I do in the evening as well. So this is, I add that on. That's part of my evening routine. I sort of do the, I do my, I'll needle it or micro- Microneedling, dermal rolling. Now, in general, I don't recommend dermal rolling because most dermatologists will tell you that when you roll it on your skin, you are getting an uneven penetration. You can get some actual tearing. And so in general, if you can find a dermal stamper, okay, instead of rolling it, there are actual stamps that you can stamp your skin. And I actually do that for the top of my head. I've gotten a little thinner hair, but dermal stampers are where you're going to, are where you can get a very even penetration of that needle. And you want to make sure it's less than five millimeters because you don't want to have that that needle be, be too long. You can get skin irritation. You can even get scarring if it's too long. Well, you've changed my evening routine, Tony. That's amazing. And do you have like a dermal stamper? I know you do it in office. I've seen you do the, I think you call it the gold tox. Is it that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it? a stamper. Yeah. Yeah. So is there one that you recommend or one that you sell? Or? There is a there is a company right now called Cure, Q-U-R-E, that has actually a, a hollow-tipped dermal stamper that a lot of people are really liking. Oh. Yeah, so that would be one to look at. Uh, and and the, the thing we have to keep in mind, if, whether you're dermal rolling or stamping, you just want to make sure that you clean, that you uh, use alcohol to clean off the tip because you don't want to, let's say, have a bunch of bacteria going on if you haven't yes. cleaned it, and then put that into your deeper skin. Okay. So let's, let's talk about face yoga. Cause I see this a lot where, and, and I'll, I would say there's face yoga, there's the tools like the gua sha tool yeah, that gua people sha, yep. use that use. And a lot of times that's marketed and actually I'll throw in microcurrents here as well. Cause a lot of times all of those things seem to be marketed for improving the volume of the skin, as you were saying, improving fine lines and wrinkles, like the sagging, the sinking and the dropping. So maybe we can go through those in line. So what are your thoughts on face yoga? Does it work? Is it hype? Is it, what do you call it? Fact or cap? (laughs) <laughs> there you go. Is it real or sus? Feel, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so face yoga basically is um, a practice that some people do where they're essentially exercising the muscles of the face. And it looks kind of silly, like you make these extreme facial expressions. And the idea is, the belief is that the muscles of your face, like anything, sag as you get older. And so if you exercise those muscles, it's going to cause the muscles to be tighter and for your face to look lifted. The interesting thing, though, is when you are creating those kind of weird facial expressions, you are creating a lot of times wrinkles by doing that. You know, if you're squinting your eyes real tight, which they have you sometimes do, that creates the crow's feet. If you're lifting your eyebrows really high, you can see vertical uh, horizontal wrinkles of your forehead and, and other dynamic wrinkles as well. And Botox works by doing the opposite of that. It causes muscles not to create those lines, not to flex, you know, not to work essentially, And that results in smoother lines afterwards because you're not making those wrinkles. And so the first thing you want to keep in mind is if you are making all these facial expressions, like with face yoga, you are essentially creating the, making those wrinkles deeper and deeper as you keep doing it. Because every time technically you lift your eyebrows out and create those lines, you are going to strengthen those muscles that are creating that. And eventually you will create a deeper crease from, from doing that. Okay. And that's why Jim Carrey, I love Jim Carrey fantastic actor, absolutely hilarious. He is not aging well. And it's because of you know making all these extreme facial expressions. However, there are two things I do like about face yoga. Okay. I do think in general, if you do all these facial extreme facial expressions, it will make your wrinkles worse. But there was a study that looked at face yoga and facial volume. 
And they did find that if people do face yoga, that they will be working those muscles out. And like any muscle that you work out regularly, that muscle can increase in size. And so you may be able to get actual volumization and added volume, added volume into your cheeks, almost like filler, because those muscles get bigger. But that is at the expense of potentially deeper wrinkles. <laughs> well, so, don't be attached directly to the Like, I have to refresh my facial anatomy, but the jo- the muscles in your arm, they cross a joint. There's a tendinous insertion onto the bone. Whereas in the face, there's a lot of attachment to the skin. So the more that you're contracting the muscles of the skin, the muscles, the muscles of the face, you're going to be pulling in almost like a perpendicular, you know, if you think about just the, let's say the muscles around the mouth or the muscles around the eye, they're the same. So at the crow's feet that you're talking about, as you're doing those extreme movements, you're going to be pulling on the skin. So I'm fine for fill, like I'm fine for volume, like the, the extra fill that it gives, but it seems like it. Yeah. I mean, it's opposite of what it should be doing. In general, yes. In general, the idea of added volume as the benefit of it to me just seems like it's it's more of a side effect and it's probably not worth trading it for all those extra lines, you know. And we know that if you crease the the skin over and over and over again, that those creases will stay. You know, we see that I see it in women who have larger breasts and they lie on their side when they sleep, eventually get lines, vertical lines in their chest. We send people who get sleep wrinkles on their face. You know, I, they always say, I wake up every side. morning with a line across my face because I eventually, sleep on the right side. Yeah. Eventually some of those lines will actually stay. And yeah. so we do know that that if you continue creating those wrinkles, they will eventually stay long term. And that's why you doing face yoga doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, part of face yoga though that I like is the relaxation portion of it. And I do think that that is great for your skin and the massaging of the face that can help to improve the the blood supply that can help uh, improve circulation. And then that's, that's a kind of the idea behind gua sha that I think is great. You know, gua sha is this device. It's a stone with a very specific shape to it where you can run it along your jawline. You can put it on your cheeks and it really is good for pushing out extra lymphatic fluid. You know, it's great for reducing swelling. You know, if you go and eat a real salty meal one night and the next morning you wake up, you're all puffy, then yes, that's a great way to help to reduce that. But it's not going to create any permanent change of your skin. It's It really is just like putting, let's say, something cold over your eyes that can help temporarily reduce puffiness, but it's not going to create a permanent effect because, for example, puffiness under the eyes is typically caused by fat that's protruding. And so I think being realistic is that doing something like running something over the, the jawline on the outside is not going to actually change the architecture of your face. It's not going to move a muscle. It's not going to cause fat to disappear. If that was the case, then man, I would be rubbing my love handles all day if that would cause my love handles to go away, but they're not. And so just <laughs> massaging is not going to cause an actual physical change in the architecture of your body. Hey, Bettys, I hope you are enjoying this episode as much as I am. We're going to take a squeak, a little short break so you can hear a word from our sponsors. Imagine being able to see into the future when it comes to your health. What if it was possible for you to get information today that would help you avoid diseases that might be in the pipeline in your future? Well, the advanced DNA test from the DNA company can help you do exactly that. The DNA 360 test takes your genes, scans them, and then generates a report that tells you exactly what health risks you may have based on your unique genetic blueprint. The DNA company test not only tells you what your health 
health risks are, but it tells you how to lower your risk. And it tells you what diet might be best suited for your genes, what supplements you might need to take, and even if you need to change your environment to avoid toxins. You can find out things like if you have a risk for arterial inflammation, if you should be taking a methylation supplement to help offset that, or if you have, let's say, suboptimal fat metabolism, which means maybe you need to avoid consuming copious amounts of saturated fat. It will also tell you and give you recommendations for reducing your risk for over a hundred different health conditions like breast cancer, Lyme disease, Alzheimer's disease, seizures, dementia, and dozens, dozens more. If you value your health, and I suspect that you do if you are listening to this show and you want some tools to help you avoid serious diseases, then go ahead, order this DNA test from the DNA company. All listeners of the Better Podcast are eligible to receive a $50 discount using the code Dr. Stephanie. That's D-R-S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E at checkout. So all you have to do is go to thednacompany.com forward slash Dr. Stephanie to get your kit today. Okay. And what about microcurrents? This is the same, I would, I want to say, I don't want to say fear because I, I, you know, but I, I, I always think of, well, if you're, if you're causing the muscles to contract, like I, you know, there's those ones where I think it's called new yeah. brand or new face, maybe, new face, I, new new face, face yeah. where you take it and then you'll see the befores and afters and everything looks amazing. Yeah. It's like, but you've yeah. been contracting the muscle. So is that increasing the propensity for wrinkles, fine lines, or wh- how do, what do you think about microcurrent? So interestingly, microcurrent has never really just been tested hardly at all. And I have gone and tried to find literature on microcurrent and skin. And I have I've never been able to find any true studies on microcurrent. So really what is out there is the only microcurrent that I've seen that there are studies done on are more aggressive ones that are in the office. There are actual devices that you can buy. They cost over $200,000 and you put leads on the person's face and you stimulate those muscles to contract. And there are some these laser companies that are, you know, selling this stuff, they're saying that people do look younger afterwards. In general, the way I would look at microcurrent is it's not harmful. You know, if you want to do it, it may create a temporary lifting effect because you're probably causing some of the smooth muscle to contract a bit. But I don't think that's going to be truly anti-aging. You know, if you're going to go out for an event and you want to use a microcurrent, it may create a very temporary kind of lifting appearance to your skin. We've seen those videos, but I don't think that you're going to get anything long-term from it. All right. And let's move on to, we've been talking a little bit about eyes, Uh, eyes, fine lines, frown lines, and forehead wrinkles. I get this question, not a ton, but you and I, again, in this, in some of the circles that we run in, it's like people are pro Botox, right? Like it's a prophylactic. It helps to, you know, it prevents wrinkles from forming. And then there's, and then there's other individuals in our kind of circle group, we'll say, where they're like, it re, you know, it destroys the mapping on around, along the homunculus in the brain. And it just, you know, and then you're just going to get more nerve branching. And it's going to just, your wrinkles are just going to get worse. Like, what do you think about Botox? So Botox is the most um, used uh, beauty treatment in the history of the world. So every day or every year, over 5 million Americans get Botox. In the history of the world? Is that what you said? In the history of the world. It's so many people have had Botox. It's insane. Yeah. So the way it works essentially is that it prevents transmission of nerve impulses to muscles. And so it's a toxin. It's made by a bacteria. and, And if I inject the smallest amount into you, you would die within seconds probably. But- if you take the most minuscule amount and you inject it into a muscle that creates wrinkles, 
it can cause the transmission of nerve impulses to that muscle to stop for about three to four months. And any wrinkles that are created by that muscle contracting will smooth out. Because of that, you get a very quick result. Usually people see results within about a week or so. Once again, they last about three to four months. There's a new one called Daxify that recently hit the market, and that has about a six-month longevity to it. Now, the main concern with Botox, I mean, obviously, you can get a bad job and get weird-looking eyebrows and stuff like that, but are there any true dangers to it? So first of all, I'll tell you, in my office, I have uh, five injectors in my office, we have probably treated at least 20,000 people over, over the last 20 years with Botox. It's our number one by far most popular treatment we do. And in these 20 years, I have seen the worst I've seen from Botox is maybe, I think maybe two patients who've had a temporary droopy eyelid where the Botox has kind of migrated down to it and you give them some drops and it goes away within a couple of months. That's it. That being said, there was a, a rat study that found that if you inject Botox into the facial muscles of a rat, you can actually find some of that Botox in their uh, cerebral spinal fluid. What that means to humans, we don't know. I have never seen or heard of any of my patients having any type of a systemic reaction or an autoimmune type reaction to Botox, but there was a colleague of mine who was a natural medicine doctor who called me up one day concerned because this person said that I had Botox and now I'm having these weird neurologic symptoms. And it turns out that it was due to something else, but I did go down the rabbit hole to see, is there anything out there? You know, I talked to dermatologists who've been practicing for 30 years. Everybody said, no, there's nothing that they've ever, ever heard of that's systemic. But you go down that rabbit hole, there are Facebook groups of relatively small numbers of people who appear to have had potential reactions to Botox. I think there has to do with some type of bio-individuality. Maybe there's a very small segment of the population that just does not do well with it. But once again, I have not seen any true scientific studies to show that. And in my experience, I haven't seen that at all. Well, that this was very my different question too. Like, than, how let's say could breast you... implant illness. Right, right. Like, how would you know? Because I, there was, a, I remember there was a post that you were involved in. It was a couple of years back now, but someone was like, it rewrites your, I think it was like the motor mapping on your homunculus. I'm like, how did you test that? How is, how <laughs> did you, how do you know that that's what's happening? So you're, so the bottom line here is, and and not to not to dismiss that, right? It's like we always want to we always want to listen to both sides, but that's actually that's science, right? It's like here's the here's the theory. We think, let's say, Botox is safe, and now just come at me, come at me with all the things. Come and if it's able to withstand the test of time, as it seems that Botox has, then we can we can confidently say that it's relatively safe. Yeah, and when you look at the numbers of people having this done. And you you are not hearing this, you know, it's not like breast implant illness where there's this just groundswell of people who are like, look, we have so many people who have issues. You know, Botox, there really isn't, you know, you don't, yeah. I mean, you hear people who are, who maybe have never had Botox, like, oh, I would never do that. It's so scary. But you don't necessarily hear of like, oh, here, here's a group of, you know, 2000 people who've all had damage from Botox. It's been proven and, and, and this and that. Yeah. I mean, I just haven't seen it. And once again, I would never discount anybody's personal experience and Yes, I do think maybe some people could potentially have a bad reaction to it. I just have not seen that be anything consistent. And in my practice, I have not had a single patient ever come back to me and say, you know, I had Botox done six months ago or five years ago, and I've never recovered from it. I've not a single patient that has come forward with that. It's a nice end, right? 20,000 patients. 
over you know it's a, it's a <laughs> you nice think sample I retire <laughs> no no it's a nice it's a nice sample size to be able yeah. to derive you know a clinical like an informed clinical opinion about it is, is what yeah. i'm saying yeah but we're not necessarily asking people you know but yeah it's just it's nothing that and once again when i have talked to other derma, uh, dermatologists who are even doing a lot more of this than i am i just did there has not been anything and i specifically was looking at this after i had a friend of mine who was really concerned about potential systemic effects of, of this person's botox mm-hmm uh, plumper lips, whiter teeth. Those are maybe two separate. Let's talk about plumper lips. Sometimes I can be on Instagram and I'm like, I have to get off it. Cause I'm like, you know what I need? I need bigger lips. I need, you know, your lips I, are great. <laughs> well, thank oh you. I appreciate that. But so, you know, it can get in your head, right? You can see all these, they often tend to be Eastern European, just knock out women. And I'm like, you know what I need? I need to look like that Russian. I need to look mm-hmm. like this woman. <laughs> so talk to us a little bit. I've never, you know, never done anything to my lips. I, and you know, it's, I ne- I don't think I ever will. I know that volume, there can be volume loss. And that's actually what I, I'm going to try this dermal stamper. I, I, I'm going to, I don't know if I'm going to get roasted for this, but the, the roller that I have for my face, I also do it on my lips as well, because I'm like, all right, I'm 45, almost 46. Like there's going to be some volume loss. Maybe that's not the right thing, but maybe the dermal stamper will help with that. But let's, let's talk about plumper fuller lips for individuals who, you know, haven't been happy with their appearance. What are some of the options that they have risks associated with it and what they can, what's a reasonable expectation from the patient? Yeah. So the first thing, especially for someone like you, if you want, if you're like, how would I look if my lips are a little bit bigger? The first thing would just be to get a topical lip plumper. I mean, there's so many out there. Oh, that's a good idea. They're typically two different kinds. There's those that have, let's say, a kind of more of an irritating substance like a cinnamon in it, where you put it on your your lips and it it may even burn a little bit. It'll tingle and you create basically some irritation causing your lips to plump up. The lips are very sensitive to trauma. And that's why if somebody gets popped in the face, they get a fat lip. They don't get a yep. fat chin. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because the lips are so sensitive and they swell so quickly. So sometimes even just using something like a topical lip plumper like that, that can last a couple hours for some people is really all that they need. If you're going to, let's say go to a reunion or a party or something like that. If you're looking for there, there's nothing that we know of that is non-invasive that can increase the size of your lips permanently. Okay. Just temporarily. If you want it for a permanent increase in the size of the lips, then really the only options you have would be injectable filler, uh, would be fat, using your own fat, or doing a, a surgical operation. I would discourage anybody from doing a surgical operation on their lips to make them bigger because the scars associated with those types of things are just never worth it. So then you're looking at filler or fat. Fat is nice for some people because they go, oh, it's just my own tissue. And what stays with fat can stay for a long time, but it is surgery. You have to pull the fat out of a part of your body, which is essentially doing liposuction. You you spin the fat down, purify it, then inject it into the lips. The problem with fat injections in the lips is only about 10% of it will stay, maybe 20% if you're lucky. What happens to the other 80 or 90% of it? The body just absorbs it. It doesn't get a, a blood supply. So your body just basically makes it, you know, absorbs it, it goes away. And so, so there's necrosing, it, it dies? No, I've never seen it actually necrose. Technically, if you do a lot of fat grafting, you can see necrosis of fat in some patients, but essentially your body just absorbs it. Like it breaks it down and it clears it out. Now, in worst case scenarios, you can get fat necrosis, which can present as a little lump. I have done fat grafting into the lips for you know, over 20 years, and I've never had that in the lip. I have seen a few times when I've done, let's say, breast reduction surgery and stuff like that. But anyways, you can do fat, but fat, once again, only a small percentage will stay. Filler is by far much more popular 
And usually filler lasts anywhere from three months on the low end up to maybe a year or so. The issue with filler is it's really painful. Okay. Your lips are so sensitive. They're some of the most sensitive parts of the body and to take a needle and run it through there or a cannula, it is not fun. I, I will inject lips in my office and I hate doing it. I actually charge extra for it because I hate doing it so much because I hate putting people through the pain. It just, it's not fun. I actually had a woman come to see me this is many years ago. She was uh, an older woman. She was in her sixties and she was there with her husband. And she's like, well, I want lip injections. I go, okay. So I started injecting her lips and she starts going, she starts screaming. She's like, dear Lord Jesus, dear God. And so oh, I stopped them. No. I go, are you okay? Do you want to stop? She goes, no, I'm doing this for my husband. And her husband's standing next to her holding her hand. And, and he's like, honey, you don't have to do this for me. And she's like, I want you. You know, I want, I'm going to try these big lips for you. So I'm oh. like, all right. So I continue and I inject again. She's like, dear Lord God, Jesus in heaven, dear so I stopped again. I'm like, are you sure you want to keep doing this? I feel so bad. I'm hurting you. She's like, no, let's just do it. I want to give my honey these big lips. Oh, bless her. Bless <laughs> so her. So we finished up. Like literally she was in her like late 60s and just her one thing she wanted to do for her husband. Her husband was there and she's like, you don't have to do it. You don't have to do it, honey. It's totally fine. I'm fine. Oh, uh, wow. But it was really, it was really sweet. But it hurts. You know, that's the thing. Yeah. It really does hurt. Some people tolerate it well and other people, it's just not fun. Wow. What, I mean, bless her. <laughs> Such a nice story. <laughs> but also buyer beware, right? Like the, it, it's going to be painful. And you said yes. three months to a year. So you're on, you know, at a minimum doing this yearly, you know, maybe you're doing it quarterly, it sounds like as well for some people. Yeah, quarterly is not as common, like twice a year, once twice a, twice year. a year. The thing you always have to keep in mind if you're considering injectable filler, though, is that filler, unlike Botox, filler can be very dangerous if it's not done the right way. And so filler, essentially, the way I describe it, it's like liquid skin. And so what we're doing is we're injecting hyaluronic acid, which is the most common filler, which is a naturally occurring moisturizer of our skin. We're injecting it to either fill in lines, to plump up the cheeks or plump up the lips. The problem that can come is if it's accidentally injected into an artery. There, yeah. The arteries basically supply blood to parts of our face. And if you accidentally inject filler into an artery that, let's say, supplies your nostril, it can cause the blood supply to be cut off from that part of the body, let's say like the nostril. And if that blood supply is not, if that isn't like cleared out and then that blood supply reestablished, that tissue can literally necrose, it can die and you can lose parts of your face. And so people have lost parts of their nose. They've lost parts of the lip. They've even gone blind from bad injections of filler. And so the key to prevent something like that from happening if you're going to consider getting filler done, in addition to obviously finding the right the person injector, but two things you really want to look for. Number one, make sure it's a hyaluronic acid filler. Hyaluronic acid fillers, there is an enzyme called hyaluronidase that can actually melt that away, some of it immediately. But there are other fillers on the market that are not hyaluronic acid fillers. There are fillers made of other substances like silicone. And if you accidentally inject that into a blood vessel, Basically you're, basically, you're screwed. There's nothing we can do to melt that away. And you just have to hope and pray that that body part survives it. So it someone who with, died recently, she was like a Kim Kardashian lookalike. And she was, I don't know, I can't remember if she was that was from That was in the butt. And we oh, can talk yes, about that. It was a want. glute one. Yes, it was like yeah, she had yeah, a butt surgery. Okay, okay. So that's an embolism as well. But this yeah. is for the face, you know, which okay. is obviously much more common. And the second yeah. thing is if your doctor can or your injector can, ask them to use a cannula. 
So you can inject it with a needle, which is obviously very sharp, much easier to get into a blood vessel with a needle. A cannula is a blunt ended. It looks like a needle, but it's, it has a blunt end to it. And typically it's, it's malleable. And so the idea behind cannulas is that if you accidentally, if you're near a blood vessel, it doesn't necessarily puncture the vessel. It kind of goes around it. Not always, but most of the time. And so mm-hmm. for safety reasons, if you're going to consider filler, make sure it's an hyaluronic acid filler and ideally make sure they're using a cannula. Most parts of the face, you can do it with a cannula. And you can ask for that. You can say, can you use a cannula with this injection? Yeah. And you know, your doctor may say, oh, you know what? For these types of wrinkles, it's not going to work. You know, I had a patient the other day where we were doing some fine lines around the mouth and I couldn't use a cannula because the lines were too fine. But if you're, let's say, getting your cheeks injected, if you're getting your frown lines or your nasal labia folds, smile lines injected, if you're getting your lips injected, then using a cannula is definitely going to be safer. I loved in the book your own personal story around hair loss and some of the natural things that you did. And I would like to address that if, if, if we can, because I think what happens, particularly for the demographic that listens to this show, like we're in perimenopause, we're in menopause, you know, the, our hair is in many ways, it's kind of like our crown, right? So as and a lot of women, whether it's androgenic, or, you know, there's sort of male pattern, female pattern, hair loss, or just because of a change in our hormones, and we're starting to get a lot of thinning, it can be, you know, it can be relatively upsetting and traumatic. Yeah. 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 So can you talk, walk us through what are some of the options for women? You can talk about for men as well. But what are some of the options that we might consider when we're thinking about a loss of volume? And then I know that there's different types of hair loss. We've talked actually about, we had Dr. Kyle Gillette on the show. So I'll link in the, in the show notes that he talked a lot about androgenic, specifically androgenic alopecia. But let's talk a little bit about hair loss and what some of our options are from a surgical perspective. So yeah, from a non-surgical perspective. Oh, non-surgical and then surgical. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. So I mean, I, that's something that I myself have dealt with. My uh, Years ago, we, my wife and I, we were filling out this like couples thing. It's like, what do you find most attractive about your partner? And she put his hair. And so we were in Jamaica gosh, now it was maybe two, three years ago. And we were cliff jumping and I was at the top of the cliff and my wife goes to me because she was on on a rock above me and she's shorter than me. So she never sees the top of my head. She goes, oh my gosh, you're thinning on top. And I'm like, what? And I almost fell off the cliff because I was like, no. (laughs) So for me, I wanted to, you know, I I looked and I'm like, man, I do have thinning of my hair and I don't want to lose it. And so the things that I did are things that are very direct. They're very straightforward and really anybody can do it. Um, Obviously, if you've got thinning hair, the first thing you want to do is talk with a, like a functional medicine practitioner. You want to get labs checked and stuff like that. But if you want to just tackle it on your own first, then this is what I would start with. Number one, stress. Okay. We can get something called telogen effluvium where you get hair loss due to stress. So if you're in a very stressful time of your life, then obviously reducing that stress can potentially help. And and I do put a lot in the book about meditation and yoga and gratitude and things like that. Shortest of stress and stuff like that and getting more sleep and all of that. The first thing I would look at would be then taking a nutritional supplement. Now, there are certain nutritional supplements that are specifically made for people who have hair loss or thinning hair. Now, once again, you can see a functional medicine doctor, you can see if you've got an iron deficiency, you can see if you're deficient in vitamin D or zinc, which all of them can potentially create thinning hair, or you can go and take, let's say, Nutrafol, which is the uh, supplement of my choice, um, which basically has everything you need in it for thinning hair uh, and for nutrient deficiencies. Now, Nutrafol has a men's version, 
they've got a women's version they have and they have a women's balance which is for women who are post perimenopausal and postmenopausal uh, typically it's four capsules a day uh, it can take six months or longer to really see results from it uh, but that's the first thing I would recommend taking is a good hair loss supplement you did that Second, as well did you do that I do yeah and I'm still taking Nutrafol D- today okay. cool. yes Mm-hmm. Second thing that I would do, completely non-invasive, would be to try uh, uh, red light therapy or basically a laser helmet. There are helmets specifically made for thinning hair. The one that I have is called iRestore. It has like over 200 lasers in it. And essentially what it looks like is a helmet you put over your head. It's got all these lasers that will kind of target your, your follicles and you wear it for about a half hour every other day. And the idea behind it is that the the energy from those lasers get absorbed by your hair follicles and it causes your hair to go into a growth phase, okay? Instead of like the telogen where you, it's a kind of a settling down phase where the hair is just kind of quiet, it causes more hair to go into a growth phase to essentially grow. This is very scientifically proven. There are a ton of studies in the literature showing that low light laser therapy does work for thinning hair. And so Dermatologists, everybody would agree that this definitely works. Is that like the face? I have one from a company that I work with where I put it on my face and it's red light therapy. I look like it looks like a Halloween mask. Is, yeah, it, so the, is like it the a, same kind of idea there? It's a little with- bit different. So that is red light therapy. That definitely helps. And that is if you're looking for bang for your buck for overall facial rejuvenation, 100% I recommend red light therapy devices. It is similar. The ones for the hair, though, are going to be more uh, intense. More intense. Um, okay. mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that's technically more they call low light laser therapy versus red light. So the low light does have different wavelengths that will go, not just the red light therapy with like the mask that you use. Those I think are great though. And there are studies that do show that red light therapy devices can really help to rejuvenate your skin. But going back to hair, so you start with the Nutrafol, then you use the 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 helmet, the laser helmet. I would then recommend some type of a of a oil or serum on your on your scalp. Now Traditionalists will say use Rogaine. Rogaine comes in men's and women's, although women can use men's strength technically. But there was a study for those of you who want to go natural with it. There was a study comparing Rogaine slash minoxidil, same thing, to topical rosemary oil and found very similar results with thinning hair, except the topical rosemary oil did not create the irritation of the scalp that the minoxidil did. Um, now you can actually buy formulations. You know, some people will get uh, rosemary oil as an essential oil. You want to mix it with a carrier before you apply it to your scalp, or you can buy commercially made ones that are specifically they're already diluted down for you. But one of those would be an option for me lately. I've been using one. My old mentor uh, in residency, he's got a company called Hair Prescriptives, and he has actually an oil serum or an oil. It's called his Akakshi oil that's filled with healthy fats, and that's what I've lately been using myself. So some type of a topical I do recommend. If you want to, before you do the topical, you can do some dermal stamping of that area. And some people, you may see people using dermal rollers over their beards and finding that that really helps the hair growth. So you can do dermal stamping. That's what I've been doing before I apply the actual oil. So that's really a very general way to start with thinning hair that is very easy, that's natural, that's non-invasive. The steps after that, now you do want to give it at least six months to see a result from it, but it does really help. There are other things that people can try. Some people use wash their hair with rice water. Some people find that that seems to help them. There's some people who use coconut oil on their hair. Some people even use castor oil. Really all of those types of things, what you're doing is you're giving it healthy oils, you're giving it antioxidants, all that's healthy for the scalp, but no studies that I know of have shown any of those to actually proven to grow hair. 
Whereas the ones I'm recommending for you definitely have been proven scientifically. With the minoxidil or the Rogaine versus the rosemary oil, is it, again, you know, it's kind of the same question as the retinol versus the tretinoin. Is the... Is it the same frequency of application? Is it the same strength? Like, how, what is? What are we? I know we're not comparing the same compounds, yeah. but how are they? They're they're comparable in terms of. Uh, yeah, I don't recall the exact study as far as how often. I think with uh, minoxidil, you apply that every day, like every night, typically. But I'm not. I don't recall exactly from the study. It was a relatively smaller study, hmm. and I think you know when you're dealing with something like rosemary oil, it really. For me, when I put the oil on, I don't do it every day because I don't like oil in my hair every day, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It flattens out my hair. So really, I think you do it at the, with something like rosemary oil, you do it really at whatever frequency you're comfortable with because you can't necessarily overdo it because it's just rosemary oil. Minoxidil, I think is probably once a day for what I know, but I'm not okay. 100% sure on that. All right. So we were Nutrafol, laser helmet, an oil or scalp serum, a dermal stamping, Was there any other steps after that? Or that's like a general protocol for people? If that's not working for you, then the next step would be to consider PRP injections. So now you're going invasive. PRP, platelet-rich plasma, where you draw your blood, you separate out the platelets, the platelets are chock full of growth factors. And if you inject that, that PRP, that substance into the areas of your scalp with a thinning hair, there are many studies to show that that can definitely help with hair growth. I have not gotten to that step yet. We do do a lot of PRP in my office. I just haven't gotten to it yet because... I've been kind of lazy. <laughs> you've you followed this protocol. So the Nutrafol, the laser helmet, the scalp serum. How has that been working for you? Did you take before and after pictures? Have you seen that the mm-hmm. thinning is improved? Like what has been your experience? Yes. Yeah, but it still is. I'd say I probably have about a 40% improvement. And That's it's still huge. something that, yeah, it's still yeah. something though that I'm not happy with yet. But it's, you know, it's kind of a constant thing. And so this is what I would recommend starting now. Yes, if I were to... I think be less busy and at some point have my nurses inject PRP into my scalp, I probably would see even a better change with it. But yeah, I'm pricing about a 40%, maybe 50% improvement with that. And that's pretty consistent with pe- what people see. I think you just have to be definitely, you have to start off and you have to be patient because it really will take four to six months to really see those changes. Hmm. The last question I have for you, we mentioned it earlier, and I just want to come back around to it. We've kind of been dancing a little bit around it, is your Blacklist product. So I mentioned mm-hmm. that there was a woman, she was almost like a Kim Kardashian kind of lookalike, like she looked very similar in terms of her appearance. And I think she had a Brazilian butt lift. And then maybe it was, maybe it wasn't a cannula. I don't know if it was a cannula that was used, but there was some, you know, whatever fat that they were putting in or whatever product, I guess they were putting into her glutes penetrated with probably a vein and had like died on the table, I think like she had an an embolism on the table. So let's talk a little bit about that. And some of the other things that you would never recommend. You've already said breast. No, you didn't say breast implants, but that's a whole other topic. That's a whole whole other podcast. (laughs) That's a whole other podcast. Let's talk about some of your sort of blacklisted lip plants were the other ones that you had mentioned that was, I think, on your on your blacklist. So yeah, this one, the story that you're talking about, I think I'm familiar with it, is a woman who was a Kim Kardashian lookalike, and she died after having a potential BBL surgery. This, The details are still not 100% known, but essentially, you know, BBL surgery stands for Brazilian butt lift. And this is one of the fastest growing operations over the last 10 years, because, you know, our society is honestly like obsessed with the rear end. 
And so if you are looking to get a bigger behind, a significantly bigger behind, there are two operations that can do that for you. You can do a buttock implant, which is the only option for somebody who's really, really thin because you don't have any fat to harvest. Or you can do a BBL where essentially you liposuction fat, purify the fat, and then inject it into the butt. So for many years, we would say, oh, the BBL is, is a safe operation. Don't do butt implants because butt implants can get infected. They can move around and, and they look weird in a lot of people. So just do the BBL. It's nice and safe. But what we have figured out after multiple deaths, especially in Florida, at these kind of chop shop type places, is that it can be a very dangerous operation if it's not done appropriately. And so when we do fat injections, and we mentioned it a little bit earlier when we were talking about the lips, is when you inject fat into a body part, the way that the fat stays is that it gets new blood supply has to grow into it. And if new blood supply grows into that fat, then that fat can potentially survive. If blood supply does not grow into it, then the fat will eventually be absorbed or can even necrose. So when you're looking at making the butt bigger, people are like, well, geez, I want to inject a lot of fat into this person's butt to give them a real badonkadonk, essentially. How am I going to get all this fat to stay? And they go, well, the butt has these large muscles called the gluteus muscles. And if we inject fat into those muscles, there's a lot of blood supply in muscle. We know that by doing all of our reconstructive type surgeries is that our muscles are have great blood supply to them. If we inject fat into those muscles, it's going to cause the fat to stay. And we can get these large amounts of fat and get people these great results. Well, the problem is, is in these large muscles are large blood vessels. And the way I describe it, it's kind of like if you watch Star Wars and you've got the Death Star and you've got Luke Skywalker shooting those two little missiles in the exact right place and the whole thing explodes. Right. Well, this is what can happen with BBL surgery is that you can be injecting fat into the butt and if it gets into those blood vessels, if you tear those blood vessels and it gets into your bloodstream, you can die within minutes. And that's what was happening to tons of women, typically younger women and often younger women of color. So what happened then, there was a study that found a one in 3,000 death rate for BBL surgery, and that caused the societies to really go, wait a minute, what is going on here? And we discovered that the way to safely do it is to inject fat into the subcutaneous layer, not into the muscle. But how do you do that? Because a lot of times you may think you're in the subcutaneous layer, but you're not. And so now there are regulations coming around to use ultrasound to make sure that if you inject fat, that you see exactly where the cannula is going. Oh, great. Mm. Well, in the end, do you really need this operation? That's the first thing I would always encourage people to consider. You know, can you be happy? And, and it's the same thing with breast implants. You know, can you be happy and live a happy life without having this operation? And if the answer is yes, then I would encourage you to rethink whether you should do this operation because there are definite risks to it, even with the best surgeons. There are other options to help to enhance the buttocks if you want to try that are non-surgical. There are exercises that Dr. Stephanie Estima will show you on her Instagram page. <laughs> I was like, you can squat. You can squat your way to a nice butt, ladies. <laughs> yes, but even if you want like a, a little leg up in that area, there are devices now that are muscle stimulating devices that can cause your muscles to contract 20,000 times in a half hour session. We have one of those in our office, completely non-invasive. It feels real weird. Your muscles are contracting and stuff. And there are studies that show that those results can last upwards of six months. And so, yes, if you want a bit of a plumper butt, do these exercises first. If you're not getting where you want to be, you can actually do these other treatments. They're completely non-invasive, 100% safe, and you can see a nice visible change from them. Only do the operations as an absolute last resort.
The other thing I'll add into the into the sort of pot with glutes is, and I and I don't have any data on it yet myself. I've just purchased them and I haven't used them enough yet. Is blood flow restriction training? So yes. you can you can put a band that essentially it's almost like a tourniquet essentially yeah. that's going to restrict the blood flow into, and you can go into your regular squat workout or lunges and all the things. And then when you release the when you take the bands off, you're going to just get this extra perfusion of the of the of the blood flow and all the all the nutrients and all the growth factors that come with the blood uh, to help develop to help develop the glutes. And the other thing I'll just say is I think like often when you have a, a nice round glute and someone has been you know, squatting and lunging and pressing and all their way to it, there's usually really beautiful development around the glute as well. So we see beautiful hamstring development. We see beautiful abductors, adductors, and quads. Often with the BBL, you're just accentuating the glutes. So it, it can almost, almost, and this is not like no shade, like if you've done it and you love it, like good on you, you do you. But it can often almost look like almost like a baseball bat and then like a basketball on the bottom. You know, it, 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 it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't go with the rest of, of the musculature. And maybe that's just like my anatomical eye because I'm like, oh, what a nice butt, but there's no hamstrings and there's no quads. That, that's odd. Yeah, so and that, there's actually, yeah. and, and it, it, keep, it brings to mind too, you know, there are things that you can do non-invasively to reduce fat. And what you can do too, if you want to enhance your buttocks, but you don't want to undergo surgery or anything, is that you can change basically what's around the buttocks. And so let's say reducing a little bit of the fat of the lower, um, the, the lower back and the outer thighs by using non-invasive options. Like we have one called sculpture. That's a laser that can help reduce fat. You can reduce some of the fat in the outer thigh, and that may help to actually create this kind of an optical illusion that your buttocks are actually enhanced and rounder. And those are very safe ways to do it. You know, if you can be happy and do these types of things, naturally, non-invasively, then by all means, that's the way to go. And and just like you, I mean, I operate two days a week, you know, I still do a lot of plastic surgery, but at the same time, it's always trying to use that as a last resort for those people who really don't have any other option. And they say, look, for me, it's really worth taking those risks. I am just so honored to call you my friend, oh, Tony. Thank you. you are so- Same here. Thank you. Yeah, you are so well versed in your expertise. And I would always come to you first for information and risk management and really understanding some of these procedures. So when yeah. you see Dr. Estima with big plump lips next time, it's because of me. It's Take because, credit. Yes. And then if my yeah, if my lips walk into the room before I do, you know that I've been to Tony's office. Uh, all right. So we can find the book, any good bookstores, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, all the places. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, real quick, I try to encourage people to go if you're going to buy them online, if you can, and obviously there's all this place you can get at, but try to go to bookshop.org if you can. If you've got a local bookstore, if you go to bookshop.org, you can actually choose your local bookstore and you can buy it online. They'll send it to you. And the profit of that sale will go to your local bookstore. Oh. Even though your local bookstore does not have their own, if, if they're small, they don't have their own website, stuff like that. They're not developed that way. Most local bookstores now are on bookshop.org, bookshop.org. You can find the book and then up in the upper right corner, it will say, choose your bookstore and you put your uh, zip code in it, and it will give you a list of your independent bookstores around you. You can choose your favorite one, and then you can order the book, and then they get the profit from that sale, and you can support your local merchant. That's just wonderful. 
God, I love that so much. I love that. Okay, yes, so I'll make cool. sure that that's in the in the show notes. And actually, I'm going to start doing that for all of our. I'll you know look look up bookshop.org for all of our guests when we talk about books. And if okay. they want to find about you, YPS, like where can we find where can we find all of your? Yeah, so yeah. I'm all over the place. Social media. Uh, I would encourage you to take a peek at my. The website is autojuvenation.com. That's where we have all the book stuff. Autojuvenation. And if you do buy the younger younger for life book, we have a bunch of free gifts, including a companion recipe book a quick start guide for skincare. We've got actually a $30 gift certificate to the online store. So if you do buy the book, we'll actually give you $30 to our online store if you want to look at skincare and supplements and stuff like that. So just to thank you for ordering the book. Thank you so much. I, I am so congratulations. And thank you for all the thank work you. that you put into here. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. <laughs>